The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The, uh, the Abram story really begins in chapter 12 with God's call of Abram and his promise. And the promise simply is that God would bless Abram, and uh, he would do that in two key ways. One was through many descendants and through this great land grant. He basically says, I'm giving you a country and I'm making you a nation. A pretty good promise. Uh, that's a pretty good blessing, I would say. And so he blesses Abram, and he says in addition to that, from here on out, and I believe this is true not only for Abram, but for Israel, and it's an a, a ongoing principle, that you will find God's blessing by blessing Abraham and his descendants. Okay? You will fall into the curse of God or disfavor with God by dishonoring or disregarding Abraham and his descendants. Right? And so we saw that story lived out a little bit last week as, as Abraham encounters a famine and he goes down to Egypt and he uh, lies about his wife being his sister. His wife ends up married, married to Pharaoh, kind of a bad deal all the way around. And because Pharaoh, even though unknowingly, dishonors Abram, he falls under God's curse. And uh, God redeems and rescues uh, Abram. Uh, so we come to the next chapter, is Lot. And the question is, you know, here's Lot, nephew Lot, part of the family, right? Is Lot going to honor uh, Abram and fall in with the blessing? Or is he outside of the blessing? Is he outside of the promise? Uh, it, it seems likely, it doesn't say this, but it seems that uh, Lot's relationship to Abram is one of a son. Uh, does this mean that when God said, Abram, I'm going to bless your descendants, is you know, the question that's kind of hanging out there is, is Lot the descendant? Is God going to fulfill his promise through, through the line of Lot as, a, as kind of an adopted son? Well, those are the questions... And uh, so let's see what happens with Lot. Uh, first few verses uh, are a picture of Abraham coming back from Egypt. And it really has been just a, a very bad trip. You ever had those really bad trips? I remember a vacation once. We took this vacation where everything possible under the sun went wrong, right? Couldn't wait to get home. Uh, well, this has kind of been one of those trips, right? Famine causes him to leave, goes down to Egypt where there's lots of food. Uh, he lies about his beautiful wife. Uh, he deceives Pharaoh and the people there. As a result, she ends up Pharaoh's wife. Uh, Abraham compromises the very promise of God because at this point, the promise was that the land would be given to his descendants. He just gave away his wife, so the possibility of having children gets very narrowed. All right? It's something he can't do solo. And, uh, and so he compromises the promise he gets his wife in all kinds of trouble. He brings the curse of God on Pharaoh, right? But in the midst of all this foolishness on Abram's part, God shows grace. And God shows that he is going to keep his promise to bless Abraham regardless of Abraham's character, right? All, all Abraham has to do is follow God in faith. And uh, he messes up, he makes huge mistakes, but it's clear that God's basis of his promise is not, is not the self-made righteousness of Abram. And so Abram heads back, 
And interestingly, it says that he goes back uh, to the Negev. He retraces his steps back from Egypt. And it says that he is very rich. Interestingly, the word that's used there, the actual literal word, is it says he is heavy. He is heavy with cattle, gold, and silver. It's, it's interesting. It's the same exact word that described the famine at the beginning of the story. The famine was heavy. All right? Same exact word. Uh, and so it shows this great turnaround of circumstances for Abram. He'd gone down under the weight of this heavy burden of this famine, and he comes back under the heavy burden of wealth and riches. All right? All by God's grace. Okay, what a great picture of God's grace and abundance. Okay, I'm sure, you know, as Abram goes back, he is feeling, if, I mean, I'm reading into the story, I'll admit, but I'm thinking Abram's got to be feeling quite foolish and humble. Just thinking, man, I, I just really did some stupid things there. But he's surrounded by, he's got his wife back, he comes back way wealthier than he left. Loaded down. Loaded. And so it says that, um, so that he's wealthy, and, uh, and clearly it's a picture of God's grace. So secondly, it says that Abraham goes, doesn't just go back to the land, but it says specifically that he goes back to the place between Bethel and Ai, where he had camped before. This was the place where God had given his original promise. Right? And I love this picture. Abraham knows he's messed up. He knows that it's been a rough time. He knows he has sinned. And what does he do? He goes back to the place that God made the original promise. Right? He goes back to the center of the land of promise, and he re-anchors himself to God's promise. Right? He returns to that place where he met God, and he seeks God, he seeks God's presence, and he seeks to um, stand firmly in the middle of God's promises. Uh, how many people, you know, how, many, how, how often in our life, speaking from personal experience, do we wander out of God's promise and away from God's presence and end up in sin and our own foolishness and mistakes? But rather than coming to our senses and going back to God's presence and back to His promise, we feel that now we're somehow unworthy, and so we stand off at a distance from God's promise and His presence, right? Uh, how easy it would have been for Abraham to stay on the negative, kind of on the edge, and say, you know, I messed up, I'm, 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 I'm foolish, I'm not worthy to go back to that place, that holy site where I saw God before. How easy it would have been for him to do that. But he does not do that. Uh, he runs back to the promise. Uh, when you mess up, what do you do? Do you run back to the promise? Right? I'll tell you, here's a promise you should run to. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive, right? To forgive our sins. Okay, that's what that's what we do when we understand grace, right? We know that our life is not lived based on our performance, on our goodness. We know that we're going to mess up, but we know that every time we mess up, we can run back to the very promises of God and find Him there meeting us and dealing with us and showing us compassion. And so that's what, that's what Abram does. He goes back to the altar that he built before. He goes back to the place where God had met him, where God had given the promise. And I think it's a great picture of Abram deciding he is going to anchor his life by faith in the center of God's promise, right? No matter how much he messes up, no matter how much he sins and fails, his life is going to be characterized by 
faithfully following God's promise and trusting in His goodness. And so that's what he does. And he goes back and it says that there again he builds an altar uh, where he had built the altar and he worships the Lord again. All right. Um, now, this is the second time it says that Abram worshipped God. The first time he worshipped God was right after God had, had spoke to him and given him the promise. Right? Uh, and that makes great sense. You know, God says to Abram, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you this land. And if God made that kind of promise to you, how would you respond? You say, oh, yeah, okay, that's nice, God, whatever, right? Okay, that's not really the attitude God's looking for. We should be worshipful, say, God, that is amazing. Thank you for such a cool gift. God, you are wonderful, right? So that's the first time Abram worships. Abram goes down to Negev, he kind of surveys the land, he ends up down in Egypt, has all kinds of problems, comes back, comes to the altar again, what do you think is going to characterize his worship now? Uh, I mean, I just picture this guy, and again, I'm reading tons, I'll admit, I'm reading tons into the passage here, but put yourself in Abram's shoes. You know, you just almost gave away the promise. Due to your own foolishness and, and stupidity, you almost lost your wife. You could have lost your own life. Uh, you jeopardized God's promise. But instead, God rescued your wife. He gave her back to you. He blessed you with abundant wealth and riches so that you come back loaded, right? And you come back to this place. What would worship be to you? Well, I think for him, it was, it was celebrating, right? Maybe a rather humbled celebration. But I think Abraham knew grace, right? And he comes back and he celebrates God's grace and goodness. God... Look at this. I'm, I'm being blessed. And I know I don't deserve it. God, you are amazing. And he worships God. Uh, that is what worship is. And there's sometimes a sense that our worship is, uh, you know, like pure worship. And I've heard this, you know, taught. That pure worship uh, is just praising God for who he is, not because of what he's done for us. You know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, okay? Because you don't know who God is apart from what He has done for you, all right? If God is just simply propositional truths out there that have never impacted you personally, worship is going to be as sterile for you as going to a doctor, right? It's just going to be sterile and empty and uh, cold, right? The reality is that we come to know and experience all that God is by what He has done for us. Okay, God could have given Abraham a wonderful lecture on grace. And so let me explain what grace is. Grace means unmerited favor. I'm giving you unmerited favor, so be really happy that you have unmerited favor. And Abraham could have worshipped God. God, I praise you for your unmerited favor as he falls asleep, right? Okay. Abraham has experienced God's unmerited favor. Abraham knows it first person, right? And so I believe his worship was genuine and it was anything but empty. It was filled with um, passion and energy because he had experienced God's grace in powerful ways in his life. Um, so he worships God, and in the midst of his worship, uh, there's problems. Okay? Isn't that the way it always is? Why can't it just be God's goodness and his grace and 
life's going good and we just praise God and there's never problems. I don't know. There's always problems. And here again, more problems. And uh, interestingly, this story, this chapter begins, or chapter 12, begins with Abram going down with the problems of famine and all that was caused by having nothing. Now the problems are by having too much, right? He's there with all of his wealth and cattle. Lot's there with all of his wealth and cattle. And it seems that, it, it doesn't say it, but it kind of hints or implies that some of what Lot's wealth uh, has also been from their sojourn in, in Egypt. Either way, they both have now too much, and they can't live together. And their shepherds are quarreling and fighting because there's not enough pasture to feed all these animals that belong to them. Right? So there's conflict, there's strife, and people not getting along. And uh, uh, Abram becomes aware of it. And uh, notice what Abram does. Okay. Now, now get the picture here. They're back at uh, AI. They're back in the center. They're back in the place where Abram is being reminded and remembering God's promise. And God had said, all this land you see, everything you have walked through is yours. Right? Uh, it belongs to you, Abraham, and to your descendants. And uh, so Abram considers God's grace. He's experienced God's unmerited goodness in a very powerful way. And so he says to, he says to his nephew Lot, look, Lot, let's not fight. In fact, he uses a, a a Hebrew word that they don't actually translate in, in most Bibles, but it's the word please. He says, look, please, let's, let's, let's not fight. And then he says it again. He says, please do me a favor. Pick whatever land you want for yourself. Think about what, think about what Abram's doing here. Uh, he's taking what God has given to him, uh, rightfully and fully his, and he's giving Lot first pick of all that God's just given him. Okay? Would you do that? <laughs> okay. Would you say, you take and look, and you, you find the best you can, and I'm going to give you first pick out of all that God's given me. Uh, incredible generosity on, on Abram's part. And, and I really believe that it's a, sim, it's a symptom or sign or symbol that G Abram is able to share God's goodness because he has received such goodness, Right? Uh, God has been very generous with Abraham. John, uh, God has been very rich in blessing Abraham. And so now he can afford to bless others. Right? He's not selfish. He's not stingy. He doesn't say, I mean, this is, this is, what, this is probably what I would have said. I said, look, like we, like we can't live together. This is not working out. So I'll tell you what, I like that place over there. I'm moving there. You can go anywhere you want as long as it's 100 miles from me. Right? Uh, just stay away from me, right? That's not what Abram does. He gives Lot first pick of the promise that God gave to him, what was rightfully his. Um, grace should have that effect in our life. And in fact, I think a great sign, if you want to test how much we really are resting in grace, okay, how much grace has impacted us personally, I think a great test for that is how generous we are with what God's given us, right? Now you can say, okay, I can be generous with what God has given me. No problem. But everything I earn about myself, I'm keeping for myself. Right? Okay, that would be missing grace. That would be missing the point, wouldn't it? Uh, Abraham understood that everything he possessed came by God's goodness. It was a gift from God. 
So he, uh, in his thinking, said, you know, God has blessed me. He has promised to bless me more. I can afford to share. I can afford to be generous. I can afford to give extravagantly and abundantly as God has given to me. Uh, does generosity characterize us as, as followers of Christ? Uh, do people look at us and say, that is a generous person, always giving away, always giving not just what's left over, but giving it abundantly out of what God has blessed them. There's a person that's giving what they have a right to keep for themselves, but they are sharing, right? Okay, that should be a mark that characterizes us as followers of Christ, as those who have really been recipients of the richness of his grace. And certainly that marked that marked Abram. So here's a picture of Abram. You've got to get these contrasts because uh, the point of these Lot narratives is to really contrast the character of Abram versus the character of Lot. And Abram is a person who is rooted deeply in the promise of God, who is committed to and responds uh, regularly to worship, worshiping God, responds to God's goodness through worship, through praise, and then thirdly, as a person who's generous with all that God's blessed them with. Okay? Great picture of a, a man who's learning the walk of faith in spite of his mistakes. Um, then there's Lot. Okay? That's what's like, what's Lot's picture? Okay? Well, it says that Lot was traveling with him. He also was very wealthy. And uh, he, he, he hears this, this offer. And it says that Lot lifts up his eyes and looks around and surveys. And he chooses the cities of the plain, specifically an area near towards Zoar um, in the Jordan Valley. There was a lot of debate over exactly where this was, a lot of dispute, but some very good arguments that uh, would suggest the area that he saw was uh, just on the eastern rim and perhaps even partly under the Dead Sea. Uh, now, I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it, and it is, there's nothing green about it. I mean, nothing. Not like one blade of grass. It's just a complete barren desert, desolate. Uh, but it's very likely or possible that during uh, Abram's day, it was, uh, it was very lush and beautiful, very well irrigated. Uh, certainly before God rained down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so, so Abram looks up his eyes, looks around, and he sees way off in the distance this beautiful lush green valley, right? Now, uh, we know from a couple clues in the text that the author, from the very beginning, uh, puts down Lot's decision as a very bad choice. Of course, we know the rest of the story. We know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know that long-term, he chose badly, right? Well, how is it that he came to choose so badly? This is important because uh, most of us don't want to choose badly, right? Uh, well, here's some good lessons. Three Three ways to choose badly. Uh, first thing, choose what looks good by outward appearance. Right? You're going to make a bad choice. Start by picking the thing that is most appealing outwardly. And that's exactly what Lot does. He looks at it and he, he looks at the ground and he looks at a place that outwardly is very attractive and appealing. It's, and here's why it's appealing. Not just simply that it's green, but he says it was like the Garden of Eden or like Egypt. Okay? Uh, what the Garden of Eden and Egypt had in common is they both were well irrigated. Right? 
And uh, what it meant was, if you're if you're growing sheep and cows, all right, if you have irrigated land, you don't have to travel as much. Okay, you have pasture that is going to be constantly green. So it means this is what it means. The practical side of this is you don't have to be traveling all over hillsides looking for pasture. You can really settle down. And in fact, it's interesting. It says that Lot settled among the cities of the plain. Okay, this was a, this was a life that was much easier. He could get a he could buy 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 a house. He could have his little yard, right? He could grow grass. He could get a big screen TV, right? He could relax and settle. None of this movement here and there and up and down. Okay, he could really kind of sink down roots. Uh, life here would be much easier, much simpler, much more comfortable. Okay, and so he looks at this and he sees, oh, this would be much easier, right? And it's very appealing to him. It's interesting, the language that's used here is, is very similar, almost identical to Eve's, the description of Eve looking on the fruit in the garden. Okay? That, that would be a bad sign. Okay? It looked appealing to the eye. Okay? And he reached out and he took it. He chose based on this appearance. Um, of course, the author slips in what he does not see. By the way, it looked great on the outside, but under, underneath... It was a terribly wicked place. A place upon which God's judgment was looming. All right? You can just, see, you can just picture this. You know that Abram, uh, Lot sees this beautiful green valley, grass, the big screen TV, you know, the nice yard, the whole deal. Swimming pool in the backyard. What we see is this huge, massive storm coming over the mountain behind it that he doesn't see. A storm filled with fire and destruction. Right? He doesn't see it. Um, in our own decision making, how often do we look simply at what looks good on the surface? Okay. Um, and here's the deal. Often, what we want is what, re- what does not require faith. Right? Throughout Genesis, uh, the land of the cities and the land of the irrigated, after they leave the garden, is always a picture of life apart from faith. Uh, the promised land, as we talked about last week, was difficult because it required faith in God. Okay, how often when we're given the choice do we choose away from faith and towards self-reliance, right? towards what is easier? Um, you know, there are all kinds of choices, and not all of them involve faith. Uh, I thought, you know, what, were my, what would be my choices? And I thought, you know, I could go back to my home country and get a job as a pastor and I thought what could I make if I just did that and I, I discovered this is actually I shouldn't have done this this is a huge mistake <laughs> but I discovered I could make three times as much if I got paid average what a pastor makes in the United States I would get paid three times as much as I do now okay so I'm leaving I'm out of here <laughs> uh, how much easier and how enticing that would be to say, you know, I wouldn't have to trust, I wouldn't have to raise support, I wouldn't have to trust God anymore, right? That sounds pretty appealing, doesn't it? Well, it's too appealing for far too many people. Far too many people choose the easy life that does not require faith. And I believe that's the first mistake Lot made. He said, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this trusting God thing. Famines, you know, pharaohs. Uh, I want security 
right? So he thought he could get that by going back, uh, going to the plane. Second thing, uh, it seems it seems that Lot chooses quite selfishly, right? Um, he looks across and he really does take at face value the best piece of property there. And uh, the text doesn't say a lot, but it doesn't seem to imply or hint at the fact that Lot felt at all bad about getting first pick and taking the best choice, right? Um, it seems that he was quite selfish in his choice. He really took what he considered the best for himself um, and left Uncle Abe to whatever was left. Um, it's interesting that he uses this phrase that it was, it was well, water, well watered like the garden of God, right? Uh, a reference back to the Garden of Eden. Interesting. Uh, as, as Lot considers his choice, is he trying to take a shortcut back to paradise? Is he trying to find a way to selfishly get everything he wants, only interestingly, uh, apart from God's presence, right? Outside of God's blessing. And we'll see that in a minute. Um, and there's always a problem when we want the garden of God without wanting God. So that's what's at the heart of materialism and consumerism. Right? It's deciding that I'm going to give for myself heaven on earth, but without God. I want everything here and now that's going to make me happy and satisfy me, but I want it in human terms on my own call and without really God around telling me what to do. And that's selfishness. Yeah, it's thinking only of self. And that's really where Lot seems to be. Thirdly, so, so first off, bad choice. Um, choose by outward appearance only. Secondly, choose selfishly. Choose what's best for me. Thirdly, choose independence. Right? Uh, Lot was picking for himself a lifestyle where he could be independent, where he wouldn't need his uncle's help, he wouldn't need anybody else's help, where he could really be on his own. Interestingly, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah lay just outside the Promised Land. Right? The borders of the Promised Land was the Jordan River. He picks the other side of the Jordan River. Okay, all through the Old Testament, it's very clear about the geographic boundaries of this Promised Land. And Lot chooses just outside the Promise. Okay, now, I don't know how much he thought this through, but it's very symbolic of what was going on with Lot. He does not choose the promise and blessing of God. He chooses to do it his own way. He chooses really to be a self-made man. And really what he's saying here is, look, I don't, it's great if God wants to bless me, wonderful, but I don't need God's blessing. Okay? I can do this on my own. All right? I'll bless myself. Uh, his, his motto, I think, was, blessed are those who help themselves. Right? God, well, that's not it. God helps those who help themselves. Right? He says, I'll help myself. If God wants to bless me, great. But I'm going to do this independently. All right? So he, separ he separates himself from God's blessing. Okay? He moves outside the promise. Um, and going back to verse 12, chapter 12, God said, I will bless those who bless you, those who dishonor you, those who disdain you, those who walk away from you, I will curse. Okay, Lot is not choosing to be part of God's promise and God's blessing. He is choosing to go his own way. Um, it's interesting. 
when you look at the attitudes of um, Lot, given modern culture, most people would think Lot was brilliant, right? Uh, most people, from a world point of view, would read the story of Lot and say, you know, if they didn't know the end of the story, would say Lot was brilliant. Abram was an idiot, right? Oh, if Abram was smart, he would have cut under a Lot and got that piece of property first, right? How contrary a Christian worldview is from the world's view. There's a great book out called Hidden Worldviews, Hidden Worldviews by Steve Wilkin and Mark Sanford. And they, they, they uh, in their book, say that there are eight dangerous worldviews that Christians outwardly disagree with, but inwardly own. <laughs> kind of the whole point of their book is that we would say these things are bad, but the reality is they have snuck into our life and they're hidden deep inside. And while we say we don't like them, we very much choose and live based on these worldviews that influence us. Uh, and he names them. They're, they are individualism, consumerism, nationalism, moral relativism, uh, naturalism, scientific naturalism, the new age, postmodern tribalism, and salvation by therapy. What's interesting is you see at least, yeah, salvation by therapy. Um, I won't go into all these, but it's interesting. You see three of these clearly portrayed in the life of Lot. Individualism, consumerism, uh, and moral relativism. Right? He can live in Sodom and Gomorrah and be quite unfazed by their compromising values. Uh, he can pursue a life of consumerism, of getting things to satisfy himself. Uh, the authors say, consumerism promises fulfillment from the things we own. Freedom, status, and security are attached to objects. Note all the advertisements that promise spiritual fulfillment from material things. Consumerism promises to give us power and make us significant. Materialism reduces everything to categories that can be resolved with wealth, leading to su substitute the real thing, uh, leading to substitutes for the real thing, such as sex for love. We can gauge what we value by what, by what we are most afraid of losing. Well, Lot is sold himself out to a life of individualism and consumerism and materialism, the easy way, right? Um, we need to be very careful in our own lives that we, uh, we're aware of these hidden worldviews that sneak into our thinking and influence our decisions. Are we really choosing daily the path of faith? Okay? The path of faith is difficult. The path of faith is not fun, often, right? But the blessing of God comes only through the path of faith, right? We have two ways to do this, to do it myself or to let God work, right? It, Lot chooses to do it himself. Well, finally, the chapter ends up this way. It says that uh, after uh, Lot packs up all of his animals and leaves and is uh, riding off into the sunrise to the east. By the way, in Genesis, it says uh, everybody ends up going east, ends up going away from God. And Lot, the last scene we see of him uh, in this chapter, is riding off into the east. And there's this great picture of him walking away from God. Okay? After that, it, it quiets down. The dust settles. And God once again comes and visits Abram. And he says, Abram, I want you to lift up your eyes. Right? 
Same words that describe Lot's action. He says, lift up your eyes, look around uh, at everything you see. He said, I... And, he, and God again restates his promise, uh, but he expands it. He says, I, I want you to look around as far as you can see, east, north, south, east, west. Everything you see, I am giving to you. Okay, not just to your descendants, but this time God specifically names Abraham. He says, I'm giving this to you and your descendants. And not only that, I'm going to give you descendants, but he expands that as well. He says, I'm not just giving you a few descendants. Okay, I want you to get this. Because uh, first time around, he just said, I'm giving you descendants, which can mean like five, ten. You know, a big family is like 25, right? Uh, ten children and 15 grandchildren. Not 25 children, okay. Um, God says, I am giving you descendants so many that it's going to be like the dust of the ground. Innumerable. Okay? That kind of puts it in a whole different category. right? Um, he restates the promise. And then God says this. He says, I'm giving you this, every direction, all you can see, uh, and as a permanent possession. I forgot that one. Okay, so he... He restates that it's to Abraham. He states that his descendants will be like the sand of the, uh, the dust of the ground. Thirdly, that it will be permanent forever. Okay, I'm giving you this, this blessing forever. Uh, and then he says, go and walk through the land in every direction, for I'm giving it to you. Uh, let me just say three things about God's promise here. First, God invites Abram to explore the promise. I want you to go walk through it. What was the point of that? Uh, well, he wants him to survey all that he's giving him. Right? He wants to explore. Uh, it's important. It's important that Abram have some grasp of the extent of this promise he's receiving. Now, in our day and age with cars and airplanes and satellites and Google Map and you know all this stuff, Israel is actually a very small country, right? And we can look at it on Google and just zoom down until it's just a little speck, right? Right? Okay, imagine this guy who doesn't have Google Maps, doesn't have a car, okay, has never seen a helicopter. He lives on foot. Okay, this was a big chunk of property. Okay, this was a big piece of land for a guy like this. Listen, I want you to walk its extent. I want you to go from the Jordan to the sea. I want you to go from the farthest north to the farthest south till you get down into the desert. Okay. I want you to experience the breadth and width of this promise. And that's what Abram does. He takes off and he explores it. Um, great picture for us. And, you know, we like Abraham, the, the crux of our life, our, our life with Christ, is really living in his promises. Okay? Uh, covenant is simply God promising to do something in us and to bless us. Uh, the first great covenant here is with Abram, where he promises to bless Abram. We live under a new covenant. It's great. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. A new covenant written in the blood of Christ. And to live in covenant, to live in covenant relationship, means simply we take possession of a whole new set of promises that God has given us. Uh, do we know what God has given us? Right? Do we live taking and exploring the, the magnitude of God's promises? I think probably most of us don't. 
Uh, it's too easy for uh, promises to be relegated to little things we cross-stitch and hang on our walls that have no meaning to us at all. They just kind of fly by us, right? Okay? We, we don't spend enough time exploring the depths of God's promises. If we did, uh, I think we would just, I don't know, we, I think we would just really explode. I, if we really knew how much God has promised us. Like Abraham, it's mind-boggling. You know, he looks at it and he can look around, but he can't really take it in. And so God says, you've got to start walking through it. You've got to touch it. You've got to get your hands on it and see how big it is that I am promising you this gift. Um, you know, do you know God's promises and have you really walked the, the breadth and width of them? Ephesians 3 puts it this way. May you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep His love is. Okay? Have you ever walked to the limits of God's love for you? Well, no, because it's impossible, right? His love is infinite. But have you even tried? Have we really tried to find how wide and how high and how long and how deep God's love for us is? Uh, that, is that will be a life-changing event, right? The more you explore His love and come to find the depths of it, it will change your life. Right? It will change your life. Abraham was starting to get a glimpse of it, and it was turning into him to a man of great generosity. The, the deeper we explore God's love, the more it transforms us into people who are like him, who have the capacity to love and give as God does, who can love sacrificially and generously and abundantly. Right? Uh, I think God invites us, just as he did Abraham, to walk the extent of his promises. Do you know his promises? There's tons of them. I, we won't even go through all of them. But let me just give you a couple of my favorites. John 1.12 and John 1.5-4. Uh, to all who believe him and accept him, that is Jesus, God gave the right to become the children of God. And there is an incredible promise to be the child of God. In John, first John, he puts it this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father uh, loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey His commands. A great promise to be the children of God. Okay? Have we explored what that means? Okay? Have we walked the breadth and width and depth of it? Well, you say, well, how do we do that? You know, it was easy for Abraham. He could just pack up and walk around. How do we do that? Well, let me give you three quick suggestions. Uh, they're just suggestions. There, there probably are many, many other ways, but here's three possibilities. One, uh, search the scriptures for the promises, like a pirate seeking a treasure. Right? Uh, this is our treasure map. Okay? We're pirates in search of lost treasure, and the treasure is the promises of God. Uh, we have to be like a pirate obsessed with finding God's promises. Okay? It's crazy. I mean, think about it. You know, if somebody promised you, you know, $10 million and they gave you a treasure map and said, you just got to follow this treasure map. It's kind of a scavenger hunt. And at the end, you'll find $10 million. How many of you would just chuck the map in a drawer and say, yeah, one of these days when I get around to it, maybe I'll pursue it? 
No, you would quit your job, you would, you would quit everything, and we would go in search of that $10 million, right? How precious are God's promises to us, right? Have we just chucked them in a drawer and said, well, someday maybe they'll have some value to me? Or do we pursue them with all our heart? Is it our passion to find all the treasure that God has given us? You may say, well, that seems kind of selfish. Oh, baloney. <laughs> you know, selfish or not, it's what God's given you. Right? Don't say it's selfish. Take possession of it. God didn't say, it's so selfish of you, Abraham, to want this land. He said, go check it out. You know, he's a generous guy trying to give it away. And God keeps giving you more. Right? Secondly, um, once you find in Scripture those promises, seek to grasp the full extent of their meaning. Okay, it's one thing to say, God loves me. Okay, it's a great promise. God loves us with infinite love. Uh, it will take the rest of our life to really grasp the fullness of what that means. Okay? We have to be daily uh, meditating and pondering and seeking to understand the width, width and depth, the, the expanse of that promise. Right? So we had to be filling our mind with meditation and with thoughts and with pondering. What does it mean that God loves me? How much does he love me? What does it really mean for my life? Thirdly, uh, I think we need to dream about God's promises. And I don't mean necessarily dream about them at night when we're asleep. I mean like daydream. I mean like imagine. Have you ever done this? Have you ever imagined what you would get if you won the lottery? I don't ever play the lottery, so I don't really think it's going to happen. But have you ever imagined, you know, if you, like, inherited $10 million? Have you ever kind of d dreamed about what you would do with it? Well, I think we need to do the same thing with God's promises. Dream about what you would do if God really did love you that much. Uh, dream about what it would be like if you really were God's treasured child. What would your life really be like? Uh, you know, we live and we inherit these promises in part now. Uh, we look forward to the day when we will possess them fully. Much like Abram, you know, God, God gave him the land and he gave this promise of children. But the truth is, he surveyed the whole land and came back to Hebron, childless and owning nothing, right? At best being a renter, right? We're kind of like that. We, we, we haven't taken full possession of the promise. Do you dream about what it will be like to take full possession of those promises? I think we need to use our imagination. And we need to dream more about heaven. We need to dream more about it, what it will be when our life will be free from sin and we will live in the abundance of God's love and mercy daily. And we'll know it and we'll experience it. Right? Uh, we need the hope that comes through the gospel. And the hope of the gospel is dreaming about the fulfillment of all its promises. So, so God invites Abram to explore. But also in walking, uh, in, in those days, kings often would, would walk their property, would walk, walk their country, and it was a way of actually claiming possession of it. Right? So there's a sense in which not only is Abram exploring what God's giving, but secondly, he's really taking claim of it. By walking in it, he is taking, in a sense, possession of it. Now he comes back, he still doesn't actually own it legally, but he has really claimed possession of it as God's promise. Uh, we need not only to explore God's promise, but we need to claim them for ourselves. 
That's faith. And that's really what Abram's living by here. He is living rooted by faith in God's absolute promises and goodness. That's the Christian life, right? We live by faith rooted in God's promises. Contrasted with Lot, who could so easily just walk away from it all, right? Abram is rooted in God's promises. And finally, he ends, he ends after his sojourn, he comes back, he settles in Hebron, a new place, but he builds another altar. And he worships, right? He worships God. He, by faith, has taken possession of all that God's given him. And by faith, he's saying, God, I worship you as the promise keeper. I, I praise you as the one who has blessed me. And even though most of the blessings are not mine yet, I worship you as the one who will fulfill every one of those promises. Right? As we worship God this morning, do we worship him as the one who's going to fulfill every good and perfect promise in our life? Let's pray. Father, it is incredible to think that the God of the universe, who is sovereign over all things, who is supreme over the universe, who is transcendent and high above all that you have made, that you would make such incredible binding and direct promises to us. And promises that are largely based, uh, as, we, as we remember Christ, as we celebrate communion this morning, we celebrate promises that are ratified, that are confirmed and made guaranteed, not by our goodness, but by the blood of Jesus. Uh, Lord, your promises to us are guaranteed because Jesus died on the cross to guarantee them. Uh, Lord, what an amazing picture of your grace. And Lord, we know that we don't deserve any of the promises but you will carry them out because you are good to your word. So Lord, we pray that our lives would be lives firmly rooted, not in the things the world offers, not in the things that the world promises to make us happy, but Lord, that we would seek our happiness, our joy, our life in your promises alone. Lord, that we would know them, that we would walk in them, that we would explore the vast expanse of them and take full possession of them by faith. Lord, thank you. And we just praise you and worship you now as the God who is the promise keeper. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.